Chapter 13, Part 1 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 13, in Belgium, Part 1. In crossing the border from France into Belgium, Professor Pant, our interpreter and General Tom Thumb's preceptor, discovered that he had left his passport behind him, at Lille, at Marseilles, or elsewhere in France. He could not tell where, for it was a long time since he had been called upon to present it. I was much annoyed and indignantly told him that he would never make a good showman, because a good showman never forgot anything. I could see that my allusion to him as a showman was by no means pleasant, which leads me to recount the circumstances under which I was first brought in contact with the professor. He was really a professor and teacher of English in one of the best educational establishments in Paris. Very soon after opening my exhibitions in that city, I saw the necessity of having a translator who was qualified to act as a medium between the general and the highly cultivated audiences that daily favored us at our levees. I had begun with a not over-cultivated interpreter who, when the general personated Cupid, for instance, would cry out Cupid, to which someone would be sure to respond Stupid, to the annoyance of myself and the amusement of the audience. I accordingly determined to procure the best interpreter I could find, and I was directed to call upon Professor Pent. I saw him and briefly stated what I wanted, in what capacity I proposed to employ him, and what salary I would pay him. He was highly indignant and informed me that he was no showman, and had no desire to learn or engage in the business. But my dear sir, said I, it is not as a showman that I wish to employ your valuable services, but as a preceptor to my young and interesting ward, General Tom Thumb, whom I desire to have instructed in the French language and in other accomplishments you are so competent to impart. At the same time, I should expect that you would be willing to accompany my ward and your pupil and attend his public exhibitions for the purpose of translating, as may be necessary, to the cultivated people of your own class who are the principal patrons of our entertainments. This seemed to put an entirely new face upon the matter, especially as I had offered the professor a salary five times larger, probably, than he was then receiving. So he rapidly revolved the subject in his mind and said, Ah, while I could not possibly accept a situation as a showman, I should be most happy to accept the terms and the position as preceptor to your ward. He was engaged, and at once entered upon his duties, not only as preceptor to the general, but as the efficient and always excellent interpreter at our exhibitions, and wherever we needed his services on the route. As he had lost his passport, when we came to Courtrai on the Belgian frontier, I managed to procure a permit for him which enabled him to proceed with the party. This was but the beginning of difficulties, for I had all our property, including the general's ponies and equipage, to pass through the custom house, and among other things there was a large box of medals, with a likeness of the general on one side and of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert on the other side, which were sold in large numbers as souvenirs at our exhibitions. They were struck off at a considerable expense in England, and commanded a ready sale. The custom house officers were informed, however, that these medals were mere advertising cards, as they really were, of our exhibitions and I begged their acceptance of as many as they pleased to put in their pockets. They were beautiful medals, and a few dozen were speedily distributed among the delighted officials, who forthwith passed our showbills, lithographs, and other property with very little trouble. They wanted, however, to charge a duty upon the general's ponies and carriage, but when I produced a document showing that the French government had admitted them duty-free, they did the same. This superb establishment led these officials to think he must be a very distinguished man, and they asked what rank he held in his own country. He is Prince Charles Stratton of the Dukedom of Bridgeport in the Kingdom of Connecticut, said Sherman, 
whereupon they all reverently raised their hats when the general entered the car. Some of the railway men who had seen the distribution of medals among the custom-house officers came to me and begged similar souvenirs of their distinguished passenger, and I gave medals very freely, till the applications became so persistent as to threaten a serious pecuniary loss. At last I handed out a final dozen in one package and said, There, that is the last of them. The rest are in the box and beyond my reach. All this while Professor Panth was brooding over my remark to him about the loss of his passport. The word showman rankled, and he asked me, Mr. Barnum, do you consider me a showman? I laughingly replied, Why, I consider you the eminent Professor Pent, preceptor to General Tom Thumb. But, after all, we are all showmen. Finding himself so classed with the rest of us, he ventured to inquire what were the qualifications of a good showman, to which I replied, He must have a decided taste for catering for the public, prominent perceptive faculties, tact, a thorough knowledge of human nature, great suavity, and plenty of soft soap. Soft sup, exclaimed the interested professor. What is soft sup? I explained as best I could how the literal meaning of the words had come to convey the idea of getting into the good graces of people and pleasing those with whom we are brought in contact. Pant laughed, and as he thought of the generous metal distribution, an idea struck him. I think those railway officials must have very dirty hands. You are compelled to use so much soft sup. Brussels is Paris in miniature and is one of the most charming cities I ever visited. We found elegant quarters, and on the day after our arrival by command we visited King Leopold and the Queen at their palace. The King and Queen had already seen the General in London, but they wished to present him to their children and to the distinguished persons whom we found assembled. After a most agreeable hour we came away, the General as usual receiving many fine presents. The following day I opened the exhibition in a beautiful hall, which on that day and on every afternoon and evening, while we remained there, was crowded by throngs of the first people in the city. On the second or third day, in the midst of the exhibition, I suddenly missed the case containing the valuable presents the general had received from kings, queens, noblemen, and gentlemen, and instantly gave the alarm. Some thief had intruded for the express purpose of stealing these jewels, and in the crowd had been entirely successful in his object. The police were notified, and I offered 2,000 francs reward for the recovery of the property. A day or two afterwards, a man went into a jeweler's shop and offered for sale, among other things, a gold snuff-box mounted with turquoises and presented by the Duke of Devonshire to the general. The jeweler, seeing the general's initials on the box, sharply questioned the man, who became alarmed and ran out of the shop. An alarm was raised, and the man was caught. He made a clean breast of it and in the course of a few hours the entire property was returned, to the great delight of the general and myself. Wherever we exhibited afterwards, no matter how respectable the audience, the case of presence was always carefully watched. While I was in Brussels, I could do no less than visit the battlefield of Waterloo, and I proposed that our party should be composed of Professor Pant, Mr. Stratton, father of General Tom Thumb, Mr. H. G. Sherman, and myself. Going sightseeing was a new sensation to Stratton, and as it was necessary to start by four o'clock in the morning in order to accomplish the distance, sixteen miles, and return in time for our afternoon performance, he demurred. I don't want to get up before daylight and go off on a journey for the sake of seeing a darned old field of wheat, said Stratton. Sure it would. Do try to be like somebody once in your life and go, said his wife. The appeal was irresistible, and he consented. We engaged a coach and horses the night previous, and started punctually at the hour appointed. We stopped at the neat little church in the village of Waterloo for the purpose of examining the tablets erected to the memory of some of the English who fell in the contest. Thence we passed to the house in which the leg of Lord Uxbridge, Marquis of Anglesey, was amputated. 
A neat little monument in the garden designates the spot where the shattered member had been interred. In the house is shown a part of the boot which is said to have once covered the unlucky leg. The visitor feels it but considerate to hand a franc or two to the female who exhibits the monument and limb. I did so, and Stratton, though he felt that he had not received the worth of his money, still did not like to be considered penurious, so he handed over a piece of silver coin to the attendant. I expressed a desire to have a small piece of the boot to exhibit in my museum. The lady cut off, without hesitation, a slip three inches long by one in width. I handed her a couple more francs, and Stratton desiring, as he said, to show a piece of the boot in Old Bridgeport, received a similar slip, and paid a similar amount. I could not help thinking that if the lady was thus liberal in dispensing pieces of the identical boot to all visitors, this must have been about the ninety-nine thousandth boot that had been cut as the Simon Pure since 1815. With the consoling reflection that the female purchased all the cast-off boots in Brussels and its vicinity, and rejoicing that somebody was making a trifle out of that accident besides the inventor of the celebrated Anglesey leg, we passed on towards the battlefield, lying about a mile distant. Arriving at Mont-Saint-Jean, a quarter of a mile from the ground, we were beset by some eighteen or twenty persons who offered their services as guides to indicate the most important localities. Each applicant professed to know the exact spot where every man had been placed who had taken part in the battle, and each, of course, claimed to have been engaged in that sanguinary contest, although it had occurred thirty years before, and some of these fellows were only, it seemed, from twenty-five to twenty-eight years of age. We accepted an old man, who, at first declared that he was killed in the battle, but perceiving our looks of incredulity, consented to modify his statement so far as to assert that he was horribly wounded, and lay upon the ground three days before receiving assistance. Once upon the ground, our guide, with much gravity, pointed out the place where the Duke of Wellington took his station during a great part of the action, the locality where the reserve of the British army was stationed, the spot where Napoleon placed his favorite guard, the little mound on which was erected a temporary observatory for his use during the battle, the portion of the field at which Blücher entered with the Prussian army, the precise location of the Scotch Greys, the spot where fell Sir Alexander Gordon, Lieutenant Colonel Canning, and many others of celebrity. I asked him if he could tell me where Captain Tippett to Witchet, one of the Connecticut Fusiliers, was killed. Oui, monsieur, he replied with perfect confidence, for he felt bound to know, or to pretend to know, every particular. He then proceeded to point out exactly the spot where my unfortunate Connecticut friend had breathed his last. After indicating the locations where some twenty more fictitious friends from Coney Island, New Jersey, Cape Cod, and Saratoga Springs had given up the ghost, we handed him his commission and declined to give him further trouble. Stratton grumbled at the imposition as he handed out a couple of francs for the information received. End of chapter 13, part 1